You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Take your Bible and open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. I've been going through this beautiful love story, and today's message is entitled Midnight at the Threshing Floor. Midnight at the Threshing Floor, Ruth, chapter 3. And with a title like that, I'm assuming um, if you have no context for where we've been at in this story, your, your mind might be going to one or two places, maybe even both. First of all, it may sound a little mysterious, maybe even a little spicy, I don't know. <laughs> Secondly, you are probably a little confused. What, what is a threshing floor exactly? And I hope that's not an innuendo, David. Please tell me it's not. Um, well, here you go. Chapter three, I want to tell you right up front. If you're thinking both those things, this title is for a reason, because both those things are actually happening in Ruth chapter three, okay? There is some some historical context that we have to bring into the equation for any of this to make sense at all. Uh, there's, there's definitely stuff that we're not going to get uh, unless you do a little history study. And then you also have some questionable moral things happening here. Um, this is a turn in the story where, yeah, some of this stuff is going to us, make us get a little uncomfortable. And we need to examine what is actually happening um, so this, is, this entire series, really, has been very unlike most of our series in the sense that we're not preaching through a New Testament epistle, right, with, with doctrine on the cross of Christ. We're not, we don't have that in this series. Um, and this isn't even really like a narrative like you have in the Gospels or the first half of the Old Testament. This is more like poetry in the sense that the author here is just taking us along in this love story, and just like any good story, you know, you have your setting, you understand what's happening, then you have the uh, attraction piece, and all right, great things are, this is all looking good and, and wonderful, and then what happens next in a drama? All of you Downton Abbey fans and Francine Rivers readers, what, what happens next? You have some conflict, right? Some people are pulled, like, oh, oh, oh no, is it not going to work out? What's going to happen? And that's what, we've been, that's what we've been seeing in this story, and that's where we're at right here in Ruth chapter 3. Because in chapter 1, this story started out with a lot of death and famine. It was dark. We saw how unfaithful people can be, and we saw how faithful our God is. We saw that in Ruth chapter 1. And... Elimelech didn't lead his family well. Naomi suffered. Uh, she became bitter. But through all of that pain, God was orchestrating something beautiful that no one else saw coming. And the big takeaway from chapter one, and we started with this, is you can't always judge what you see as an accurate interpretation of what's really going on. So that's very present in this story. Then we see God's hand in motion he gives Naomi a friend, the Moabite widow, Ruth. She becomes a God-fearing believer, and she commits to supporting her mother-in-law, her widowed mother-in-law. And they go back 
to Bethlehem, where Ruth meets Boaz. So last week in chapter 2, it was fun, a little flirty. In that second chapter of this love story, we saw that you can't always let the page that you're on dictate the next line that you're going to write. Because Ruth didn't stay stuck in her victimhood. She didn't lower her standards. She didn't get bitter. So what happened is she got busy doing the next best thing that God had already told her to do. She took the next right step, even when it was hard. And then she just so happened, wink, wink, just so happened to enter the field of the most eligible bachelor in the land, Boaz. And she meets Boaz. Boaz falls for Ruth. And now we're directly at the halfway point of the story. The plot is thickening. The drama is intensifying. And this is real life. Midnight at the threshing floor. Chapter three of our love story. From a human perspective, we're running out of time. Harvest season is over. All right, we had seven weeks of Ruth being in Boaz's field. There was chemistry. It was good. But now Naomi is like, look, Ruth, we got to do something. We got to make a move. Um, and, and they do. So, so we're going to see a lot here in this passage. But in this third chapter, a lot feels like it's hanging in the balance. And what I love most about this chapter today is that this is a message that is for every single one of us in the room whose life has not gone that storybook way. You, you don't have a storybook past. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe you fully engaged in questionable to condemnable practices. And do you remember the word that keeps popping up in this story over and over again? God's doing something in the background. He's pulling some invisible strings that none of the real-life characters in this story can see. But the underlying theme behind all of it, including today's chapter, is this idea of God's providence. God's providence. And I gave you a definition of that last week. God's endless attention and meticulous care to every tiny detail in your life to make you a masterpiece showcasing his glory. That's what God is doing in this story. It happens through death. It happens through loss. It happens in victory. And it even happens through the first thing we're going to see today, questionable advice. So if you're there in Ruth chapter 3, follow along with me, and I'm going to read the first five verses, and we're going to see where this story takes us. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe where, what place where he lies. Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So the first piece of our story today is questionable 
counsel. And, and I know, you know, Lee shared with us Proverbs 15 already on our scripture reading time. And I want to say right up front, um, this is a section of scripture that we would call descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? I don't think the Bible's telling us here to do something like this word for word exactly, especially if you're a dad and you have a daughter. I don't think you would probably give this kind of advice, right? Um, it's, not telling, it's telling you what happened, not necessarily what's supposed to happen. And you need to know that Christians and theology, the, theologians have written books on this story, and there is a very wide spectrum of takes on whether this was really, really horrible advice or really, really amazing, powerful, faith-filled advice. And I mean, that's just, that's just where it is. There's a wide range of takes. So you got the horrible idea. Naomi is taking matters into her own hands. She's telling Ruth to put your best dress on, girl. Get dolled up. And after he's finished eating and drinking, in the middle of the night, go make yourself known to him. Okay? That's, that's a take. Okay? I can see where you're getting that take, right? Um, then it ranges all the way to the other side of, look, Naomi in faith, tells Ruth, this is what we have to do. This is bold and courageous. And this is what she's doing here. She's not afraid, and there's nothing to see negative at all here. Just move along, kids. This is great. This is just great. So I'm not here to tell you where you should land at all, um, because I don't think that's what the point of this passage is really trying to teach us. You can, you can have your own take on this. I'll tell you where I land. I, w I land somewhere in the middle, Okay. I can't make myself as, as much of a positive person as I am. I can't really put those rose-colored glasses on and just say, this was incredible advice, and Naomi was just being a wonderful woman of God who was pointing her in the right direction to step out in faith. I can't quite get there. It's probably because I have a little girl, okay, and I just can never imagine myself going there. I also am not of the take that this is just horrific, sinful, and how dare she, right? I, I'm somewhere in between. That's where I'm at. I don't know where you're at, but that's where I'm at on this. And I think what we see here that's more important than all of those takes and all of those conversations about this is we have an example here of, of something in the Bible that is a gray area, okay? I, I, we, just, we don't really have great options. We just have okay options. Um. <laughs> I think this is okay advice. At the, at the worst, it's dangerous and reckless. But again, we have here honesty in God's word. The Bible was written by man, right? But it was God-breathed. And the Bible never paints this glossy, shiny picture of, of humanity. It never does. Even for our, our, our best characters in the Bible, Ruth, Boaz, people that we love, people that we look up to. The Bible is real and it shows case study after case study of broken people failing and finding grace. It leaves the messiness in there. And how many of you like this situation right here? You look back at your life and you see time after time of, you know what, now that I think about it, is that a good idea or a bad idea? You know, maybe it wasn't so airtight as I thought back then in the moment. 
you know, like some more stuff has come to light. Like, like not everything in this world and the decisions we have to make, we just have an easy path ahead of us and it's, and it's easily black and white. And at, at the time, it seemed like a good idea, but now I'm not so sure if it was completely up to par. Maybe there were some questionable motives in there. Um, and yeah, what, what category should I even put that year of my life in? I, I'm really not sure. Or on that decision. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have we been there before? Gray areas of life? Some of life is very clear. Much of life is not clear. And that includes our relationships, particularly romantic relationships, as we have here. But this is true in our friendships. This is true in our family relationships. So don't misunderstand me. God is black and white. He is absolute truth. There, there is no shadow or variation due to change. He's not changing. He is, he is 100% who he is in his character, and that is truth. That's what we're supposed to emulate. But humans are not like God, right? We are sinful. And when we come into the equation, we are not perfect. We're far from it, and we bring in the gray area of life, all right? We, we bring in our own stuff that gets messy at times. And when our human messiness intersects with God's holiness, that's where we have these nuances. I mean, just look through history. You pick any, any name of a man or woman throughout history who did great and powerful and mighty things, if you look pretty close, you're going to also see some harmful things that they also did. Any name. So, so no matter what your take here is on Naomi's advice, you can't argue with the fact that God's word is descriptive. He's leaving it unclear. It's causing us to ponder. And you have to ask ourselves: are there things in my life that fit here, that are like this? Maybe not sinful, but maybe it's just not wise. And when I, if I put a gun to my head and I had to make a decision on this, that's exactly where I would, I would put this counsel. It's not terrible. I'm not going to judge. Not sinful, but is it helpful? Is it expedient? Is it the best? Those are the questions you should be asking. That's wisdom. And then one other aspect on this first point is if we're going to take this position that this isn't quite the best advice I've ever heard, sometimes God's people don't give the best advice. I mean, am I going out on a limb here to say that? Probably not, right? Um, and as we've already seen, Naomi herself isn't winning any Biblical Counselor of the Year awards. She didn't get the Gold Star Parenting Award either. Um, her, her husband was backslidden. He died. She was bitter. Her sons married Moabite women, which to put it nicely in the most PG way possible, um, they married the complete antithesis of godly, moral, modest girls, right? Um, so this is someone who told Orpah to go back and worship your demon gods, remember, back in chapter one, okay? So I think we can all agree this isn't a clear dismount. This is a pretty shaky landing. Um, she didn't quite stick that landing on this counseling advice, but this is... This is exactly why we have passages scattered throughout Scripture that teach us that we have to weigh the advice that we've been given. We have to seek counsel 
in a multitude of counselors. Scripture teaches us that that is wise to do. And that when you do that, when you pray through it, when you talk to multiple people from multiple perspectives who are also giving you other glimpses of the story, they don't understand the whole story themselves. Of course not. But they're giving you a perspective. You're seeking counsel. When you do that, you always test it with God's word. And it always goes back to God's word. God's word is the absolute source of truth, even beyond our own experience. So, Life gets complicated, though, and sometimes in life, you know, you, you don't have time to just go around and talk to a whole bunch of people. Uh, you're, you're Ruth. You've been following the true God of the, of the, New Test, of the Old Testament, the, the God, Jehovah God, for like a couple months, right? And you just go with what you got. And Naomi is your counselor. Naomi says what to do. Life doesn't work like clockwork. I'm going to go for it. If you put yourself in her shoes, this is a desperation moment. We left off in chapter two with Ruth getting busy, going to work in Boaz's field, and now the harvest time is over. Seven weeks have passed, and the author here really does a great job of just painting this picture because now we have the next movement of this play. Now it's Ruth's move, okay? Naomi gave her counsel. Now it's time for Ruth to make a move. She already said, I will do all that you say to do. So verse six, let's go back to the text. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. This is is getting uncomfortable, I understand. (laughs) Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So next we have risky behavior, okay? (laughs) This is where we need some historical context. Um, from the cultural perspective. So this is, this is the time, this is the big party, all right? They've gone the whole harvest season, seven weeks plus, whatever it is. And now we're actually taking all the grain to the threshing floor. And the way they did this in this time period was they had a big, whole, big old party on that final night because this is payday, okay? Like all this work, all, all season long is coming to a head and you take these, these, this barley, right? And you get it into a, an area that's usually surrounded by stone. It's up on the top of a hill where there's a breeze. And you take some, some tools and you just start beating the grain, okay? And then when you, when you beat the grain is what happens is the, the, the head of that grain breaks off of that barley and the chaff floats up in the air and the wheat itself falls to the ground. So you just do this, you stomp on it for a while, then you start beating it, and then you take a tool and you just like throw it up in the air. The wind blows the shaft away and the wheat falls down to the ground. And after they do this all night, they have drink, they have food, there's music, everybody's just celebrating, look at this, look at this harvest, God's providing. They have a big old feast. And then the people who own the field, the guys who are really you know, cutting the checks, they actually 
gather around the big pile of wheat and sleep with their head to it with their feet sticking out. All right, and it's, it's like a wheel and you got these stokes of the wheel. They're like protecting, they're protecting their, their goods, right? Like that's, that's, their, that's what they're gonna live off of for the rest of the year. So you have a whole bunch of men sleeping around this big, huge pile of grain on the threshing, threshing floor. It was a late night, slowly people went home, but there's a lot of people around. Do you get that? Does that help a little bit? Does that help a little bit with, with the context of where we're at? Ruth is all dressed up and she waits till midnight and then she reveals herself to him. And notice what she says. She's making a bold move here. And I mean, let's be honest, this is a compromising situation, but I don't think her heart is in the wrong place either. I don't see this as a bad girl being forward, enticing him. I just don't see that. Look again what she says in verse nine. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, again, unless you think this is just some like, uh, innuendo again, um, and I can understand why you might think that, she's actually repeating a line in the prayer that Boaz had for her back in chapter two. Do you remember that? Back when they first met and, and Boaz was learning about her character. Look back at verses 11 and 12. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and, you, and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful line. You have come to take refuge in the wings of God. That was Boaz speaking that truth into Ruth. What a beautiful prayer. And now Ruth is telling Boaz, I want you to be the answer to that prayer. This is a smart, classy woman. She remembers everything that happened in that very first conversation, right? And, and this is like in the movie, you just got this like moment of, oh, here comes the tears because she is connecting all the dots and bringing it all full circle. I want you to be the redeemer. I want you to do this for me. And it's what she's saying is, I love you and I'm ready to marry you. If you ask me, I will say yes. Now this is bold. They do have chemistry. They are attracted to each other. We already saw that. But as we're going to find out here when you move forward, there was another family member that was closer in relation to Naomi who, because of that connection with Naomi, actually had priority over Boaz. And we're going to get into that in chapter 4. But a kinsman redeemer is a relative who in that culture would either buy land for a family member who had fallen into hard times or even marry a widow to save her life from poverty and heaven only knows what else that could happen in that time period. So the move wasn't actually Boaz's to make. There was someone standing in the way and Ruth is just going there and saying, I want you, will you come to my rescue? So when you understand everything that's happening here, this is beautiful. What an what a impactful, memorable way to say, I'm yours if you want me. She put herself out there. And now how is Boaz going to respond? Read the rest of the chapter with me because this is where we get grace upon grace. Verse 10, let's pick it back up. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So, did they cross the line? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, they didn't. Even though they danced pretty vigorously on that line. Right? <laughs> they danced all over it. I don't think they crossed the line. Um, it's midnight on the threshing floor. They're in love. And she remained through the night. Now, I think part of that was probably for her own protection. But Boaz and Ruth resisted what everything in their body was telling them to do. Probably screaming from the rooftops, just go for it. I mean, it's, it's midnight on the threshing floor. We can get away with this right here, right? We've all been there. We all know what, what, what that feels like. They got really close to crossing the line. They were in a tempting situation. Thanks, Naomi. But they stayed pure. He told her, you are a worthy woman. Two single people, physically, emotionally attracted, they restrained their desires and they followed God's plan. And remember, this is during the time of the judges, where everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Boaz is older and he's single. I dare say there weren't too many virgins left like this guy. You know, the big payday, the check was in his back pocket right now with his status and position. She's a beautiful young woman. She's, she's not in her old work clothes sweating out there in the field anymore, right? Remember, she, got, she has her nice dress on. And, and she's not a virgin. She's been married. She has a history but he cared more about her purity and following God's will than he did for one night's rush, temporary thrill. I mean, Ruth is a Moabite. She's not naive. Can't, you can't tell me that their hearts aren't beating pretty fast right here. And the question you may be say, saying is, if you're single, oh, great, so this means I can camp out on the line too? Slow down, slow down. Um, first of all, you're asking the, if you're asking the question, where's the line, you're probably asking the wrong question and you need to check your heart. That's not the question you need to be asking. If you're just asking, is this a sin? 
Go read 1 Corinthians 6. You're, you're asking the wrong question. Paul made it very clear that you should be asking what is expedient. Is this helpful? Is this the best? And again, this passage is not teaching that it's fine to get as close to the line as absolutely possible. If that's the case, your intentions are in the wrong place. And you will eventually fall, and you'll find yourself in a place that you don't want to be. At the same time, the Bible says very little about where is the line, and the Bible spends a whole lot of time on when is the line. Am I right? Are you with me on that? Think about it. The Bible spends all of its time talking about when. Not exactly all the particulars, right? We don't get that. We get general principles, but it makes it very, very clear. The time for intimacy is marriage between one man and one woman. The Bible always addresses the time. Go all the way back to Genesis. Man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one. Two self-sufficient humans come together to complement one another. God's way is covenant and then consummation. It's not the other way around. Covenant love, and then you consummate that love with the designed by God act of love that he has given us as a gift. And Jesus and Paul quote this definition of marriage from Genesis, no physical relationship until you are husband and wife. That's God's plan, and he's the one who created it. Now, our world thinks that's antiquated. The world we live in, from the TV that you, shows that you watch to the music that we listen to, the sex education in the schools, the world strongly urges you to test drive marriage before you put a ring on it. Cohabitate, feel them out. And if it feels good, great. Then you got some chemistry. That is the prevailing folly of our culture. Let me just ask. How is that working out for people? Let's be honest. We have more people in this country that are, that are on anxiety medication than any culture in the history of the world, okay? There, there are so many people who are struggling emotionally and, and, and they're torn up inside because we have not treated the gift of sex like it deserves to be treated. We have devalued it and cheapened it and taken it out of a covenant relationship with one man and one woman, something that knits two souls together, and we've casually thrown it around like it's anything you can do with anyone that you feel like. That's not the way God intended it to be. If you live together before marriage, here's some stats for you. This is not put out by Christians. This is just secular studies. Just statistically speaking, you are 33 to 55% more likely to get divorced if you live together before you get married. Living together doesn't prepare you for marriage. It prepares you for separation. Depression rates are three times as high among women who cohabitate before marriage compared with women who wait until marriage. Three times as high. Women in cohabitation are twice as likely to be assaulted and nine times as likely to get murdered. And I know I just went really dark there and that escalated very quickly. I'm not trying to make light of it, though. Those are real stats. Those are real stats. 
God's way is the best way, and our way is not working out there. The foundation of your marriage is not sexual, it's spiritual. The deepest connection between two people is the soul. And that's what you're dealing with in sex and intimacy. Just read 1 Corinthians. Ruth and Boaz here, by God's grace, looked ahead to legacy rather than momentary ecstasy. That's what they did. Boaz wanted a worthy woman, a woman who didn't lower her standards and throw herself at any of these younger men. He he expressed that. Ruth wanted a provider and a leader, a man of God under whose wings she could take refuge. So here's a newsflash to every young person in the room. Young men, loose women don't make good wives. And you can't just flip a switch and turn into a good mother either. That's not how this works. Boaz knew what he saw in Ruth, and it was more than beauty on the outside. He saw character and passion. He saw a love for God in her heart, and that's what he was attracted to. And that's what he focused on rather than just feeling good in the moment. The covenant of marriage where one man commits to one woman and that one woman commits herself for the rest of her life to one man, that is timeless. And that never goes out of style. When you enter a relationship with God at the center instead of physical hormones at the center, then you have a foundation that will last. So couples who have the lowest rates of divorce, the highest rates of joy, the longest lasting marital satisfaction. Don't listen to all the skewed conversation out there. The people who have that are people who love their husband, love their wife, the one who God gave them, and they are in love with Jesus. They're worshiping Christ, walking with Christ, working through Christ together as a team. That is God's plan. That is God's way, and that works. Worship Jesus, abide in Christ, serve others through the power of the Holy Spirit, and doing it as a team together. Doesn't get any better than that, and that's exactly what God has for Ruth and Boaz. And I know I always say this, you've heard this here before, if God says don't, what he means is don't hurt yourself. God's law is not to restrict you from enjoyment, it's to protect you from emotional and even physical harm. God designed the body, God made our hearts, he established the order, and when we follow his plan, we flourish. Worship team, you can come up here at this point. There's a lot more here in this story, but this is what I want to end with. We just covered the three movements of this story, and now I finally have an applicational point for, I mean, a lot of this has been applicational, but this is what I really have for you. This is, this is the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway about this whole chapter. Of course, Boaz has some more work to do. He gifted Ruth with this grain, and you can see Naomi. She understands men. She's been around for a while. He will not rest. He will settle the matter, he will settle the matter today. We'll, we'll tie a bow on this story next week. But here's where I want it to end for you today. God's grace is in the gray. God's grace is in the gray. 
Many of us in this room, we have made mistakes. We have crossed lines, and more than danced on that line, we have absolutely just blown through the line and done things that we should have never done. And there's baggage there because of that, emotionally, relationally. For some of us, it's different. Maybe you've been abused by others. Maybe you have trauma in your life. Because of that, you doubt yourself. You even doubt God. Sometimes you find yourself in a position and there doesn't seem to be any good answer or any way out. It's just gray. And you know, and you know, you know humanness is mixed in there. You know the truth, but it just hurts. I've already made the mistake, Pastor. I've already blown it. This is God's message for you in this chapter. God is full of grace. There is grace upon grace for you. Even if you have a sordid sexual past, maybe you were the opposite of Boaz and you took advantage of someone. Or you went one step further than Ruth. I want you to see this because this is what God is teaching us through this chapter of the story. When it's midnight at the threshing floor, God's grace is greater than your sin. He loves you still. You can't do anything to lose the love of God. And how is that possible? Well, here's one more sneak peek into next week. Boaz, remember, he's a shadow of someone greater. The great I am, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, this is what we, this is what we see about Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. No matter what you've done or where you've been, our Redeemer is a God of grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. That's who he is. He takes broken people, he heals them, he makes them new. He takes broken pasts and piece by piece he restores them and renews them. There is no sin that you can ever commit that would ever change the fact that God loves you and he has grace waiting for you. So leave your past in the past. Leave your old self and your fallen desires in the closet. You may have scars, that's okay. They're a reminder of healing. And one day, he will remove those scars. Even your scars will be erased. But embrace the grace of God and step out. Step out whole, step out new. We worship a God Second chances of third chances of fourth chances. He forgives 70 times seven. No matter what you've done or where you've been, at any time and place, you can receive the grace of God. The key word that is always, always behind providence is grace. And God's grace is in the gray. Would you stand up? We're going to worship our Savior in song. 
And I don't know what you're feeling right now. I know we've had a heavy subject. This is a heavy topic. It can bring up wounds from the past. Some of you may have a heavy heart right now. God understands. He's not nitpicking at every single thing that happened in the past. In those gray areas, in those, in those black, dark areas, there is still grace from God. And he is ready and willing and waiting to come to your rescue. God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for this message from, from this timeless tale that is so real and relevant to exactly where, where many of us are at today. Lord, we don't have all the answers. We don't always know what's going on. We can't see it all. We can't, we can't know it. Lord, may we trust you. May we put faith in your providence. You are sovereign, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you don't change. That you never change, you never, you will never actually disappoint us. And even in the gray, when humans do, and, and when we mess up, and, and when we're stuck, we feel stuck, and when we feel lost, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace in that. May every single one of us walk out here today praising you and thanking you and lifting your name high because you are a God of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But let's say our verse together, verse of the year, and we will, we will be on our way. But Romans 12, 9 through 14. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. You are loved.